0: For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous, that is, an adulterer, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord." addressing one another in with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ.
1: This time is one of my favorite, this time in in kind of the sports cycle because it's an Olympic year. And what happens in the Olympic year is I get very interested in and in, in, uh, invested in sports that I haven't watched in four years. Um, so flipping around and I saw men's gymnastics, right? I haven't thought about that in four years. And then I saw this guy. Uh, here he is, Donathan Bailey. And he really inspired me. To where I think, you know what? Maybe I should take up the rings. You know? I've always liked jungle gyms and so impressed they can, like, you know, flip around and hold a pose, and that'd be pretty, uh, pretty awesome. Right? Hook them up in my backyard and get my ring workout, no more gym membership. Maybe I could imitate him, right? No, of course not. You, you're thinking what we all know to be true. Um, Blake, you're too old. Okay? You're like, you get up there and then boom, rotator cuff torn and call the orthopedic surgeon. And You're too out of shape. You've had no training. I mean, I, you know, I had a swing set like in the fourth grade that had some rings and flipped around there a bunch, but I, don't, I, you know, I have, no, have no training. And so if you were to challenge me and say, hey, why don't you imitate Donathan? I would not be able to. How much more so for us to enter today's text, chapter 5, verse 1, where Paul gives a command, a list of several. And the first is for them to be imitators of God. If I can't, and let's just be honest, pretty much all of you cannot imitate Jonathan Bailey, although in 26 days we'll watch him flip around and root for the gold. How are we going to imitate God, who's not just one of his creatures? he's the creator. How might I imitate his holiness or his graciousness or his power? I who continually am confronted with how finite I am or his sovereignty or his wisdom. Well, the fact of the matter is I won't be able to so, but Paul has this command. He says, therefore, be imitators of God. So whenever time you see a therefore in the New Testament, especially, pretty often if we kind of back up and see what came right before this, is kind of a see what it's there for, help us interpret. So let's back up to chapter four, the end. It says, uh, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So at the very least, imitating God means imitating His forgiveness, being a forgiver of one another. Remember, this is written to local church context, to be received in the local church context, and that's how we're thinking about it today. So in this local body, at the very least, we imitate God in this series. We become who we're supposed to be when we forgive one another. He says, do this because you're beloved children. You've been adopted. we were to back up to the first week of the series, uh, Paul makes the case, listen, you were once his enemy. You were once against him. And not only has peace been made, but he's brought you to be one of his children to receive an inheritance. So forgive one another because you're beloved children. You've been adopted. You've been changed by the Spirit. So, so as creatures, it's impossible to imitate God in every way, but he said, this is how I'm remaking you. See, see the first three chapters of Ephesians is, is Paul saying, this, this is what you are, these are the facts. And the next three is, this is this is what it looks like in real life. When we forgive one another in this local church context, we remind others of the father and in a in a culture that more than ever needs to know what is the source of real peace what is the source of real love what is the source of real forgiveness more than ever there needs to be a witness from the local church of us forgiving each other you see i'm a sinner and you're a sinner and whenever we start orbiting each other's lives we're likely to hurt each other God says when you forgive each other that pleases me. Verse 2 it says walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So whatever forgiving we would do that would imitate God all of that has been a blood bought gift. So whatever you would need to forgive me for It's it's not going to cost you everything. In fact, it's cost Jesus everything. Because he's bled, you can forgive. But know that walking in love will always be costly. It will always be sacrificial. But it's it's how Christians are to be known. That they, in sacrificial, costly ways, love one another. Not in convenient, easy, when it just, just happens to work out. So no, they go out of their way to love each other. Paul says that when Christ sacrificed himself, this was a fragrant offering. No less so when you serve one another, forgive one another. This is pleasing to God. A fragrant offering, a, a wonderful smell. Verse 3. We have a whole list of, this is what it's supposed to look like. So, But let sexual morality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, which is proper for the saints. It says, don't even be uh, able to be accused of this. If someone to make an accusation or a rumor about you, in one of these categories, people wouldn't even, that can't be true. That's, that's not who they are. To be a, above accusation. Sexual morality. This is any thinking, or any watching, or any speaking, or any doing, that's here's God's parameters for sexuality, which He invented, He created. Anything outside those parameters, this is sexual morality. So God determines anything outside that. This is what sexual morality is. All impurity, excessive and rebellious living. So, it's God's parameters for how we should live, exceeding, so taking something that's good and making it ultimate or rebellious. I'm going to call the shots. I'm going I'm to move the line. I'm going I'm to move the boundary. All covetousness. So the covetousness, this is uh, uh, basically I want. And this comes in a couple different forms. One is, one can be I want what I don't have. So I want either what you've got or I want what I see. I'm coveting that. The, the opposite of that, which is kind of the same, is, is I have something, but I, I fear I'm going to lose it, so I, I covet. I want to keep it. And I, and I want that so badly, or I want to keep this so badly, that it's the thing I want most in life, at least at that moment. And any time the thing I want most, the thing you want most is not God, we become an idolater. We've taken something temporal, and gave it the center of our affection, of our attention, of our devotion. And that's idolatry. Listen to what one author says about this. He says that desires that exceed God's boundaries, okay, they're outside God's boundaries, they exist in every human heart. There's always an I want that stalks us. Sex, gluttony, addictions are common ones. Look for anger, you'll find it. Search your imagination and I want is always there. And so we have this command, okay, no covetousness. And yet we live in a condition where there's at least a battle that can occur. Common areas of coveting. I'll give you five. There's more than these. One is in the area of pleasure. I want to feel good right now. I, I want what I don't have. I want pleasure. And we can become so used to this that we don't recognize anymore when it, when that is interrupted. It becomes too important. Comfort. Uh, I want a difficult task to end or to be easy. Yeah, you know, haven't you experienced discomfort of, hey, I just want to drive from this place to this place. Why Why is there construction? Why is there an accident? Why is everyone stopping to look? What is that anyway? And the phone says i will be 15 more minutes late. And, and now I'm upset. Because what I want, I'm not going to get. Because I've made it too important. Acceptance. When, when, when I can, when you can, take what someone else thinks about you, values you, and this becomes too important, then that I might or you might do things, or I might or you might not do things that would disrupt that acceptance. Or significance, that I'll sacrifice anything in order to kind of make my mark, to leave my name, to leave my stamp, to leave my impression. Or maybe power, that, that I must have my way on my time frame, and it must work out to my details. These, these are all common ways where I want is not just stalkiness but sometimes winning Ed Welch speaks kind of a a word of truth to this he says there's a beauty in saying no and using those dormant muscles of self-control and because it's the spirit's power in you you don't become a door ascetic but you discover hints of contentment and satisfaction These are marks of the Spirit. And with the Spirit's power, you have undeniable evidence that you belong to the Father. No mere mortal can persevere in a painful battle with renegade desires. When we fight against the I want, this is evidence of the work of the Spirit. When we don't, when we're not even aware of it, we'll have a couple more verses, Paul will say, this is dangerous territory. Verse 4. He continues with his kind of parameters of what's in and outside of, of God's boundaries. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. And so, this is kind of the first clear division of the world and those sanctified, those believers. The world interprets life with crudeness, with filth. Not so for the believer. They interpret life with thanksgiving. And when you blur those lines, also that's, that's when you're living outside of the parameters. So much so that not only is this uh, improper, that... Uh, Foolishness or or crude joking. This is still under the... These things shouldn't even be named among you. And the outside world knows this. If they know you to be a believer and and you don't flinch at their filthiness or crudeness, they kind of raise an eyebrow. Oh, I'm surprised you're okay with that. Verse 5, here's the reason why we should avoid these things and the things to come later. For you may be sure of this, there's a promise, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous, that's an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So it's not because this is Paul's inclination. It's not because he's super conservative. It's not because he's out of touch with this culture. It's not because the culture has changed and is different than ours. It's not because the Bible has been changed by men. None of these things. Oh, well, the scripture says that these things, living a life, that the practice is I am outside of God's parameters for how it should be lived. This qualifies you from inheritance in the kingdom. This Kent Hughes, look what he says about this text. He says, no practicing sinner, that is no unrepentant sensualist, somebody, this is the way they live, has eternal life. Do Christians fall into these? Of course. But true Christians will not persist in them for persistence and sensuality is evidence of a graceless state. Here's, here's how it works. The believer sins and then repents of that sin and then walks in faith that God has cleansed them and Christ is sufficient. And they sin again and they repent and walk in faith and then sin and repent and walk in faith. This is kind of the cycle of the Christian life. The person who's fooling themselves to think they're a Christian when they're not is the one who sins and they don't repent, they shift blame. Or they pretend it's not that bad. Or they try and do more good things to make up for it. It's a person who does any number of things to kind of reboister their own sense of self righteousness that I'm good and not a sense of I am not good. There's only one that's good and, and I need to beg him for mercy that that he will give to me the goodness of Christ so it's not that Christians don't sin, it's that this is not their common practice they don't live in these sins it's not that a Christian never is covetous and never wants it's that when they are they repent of it, that's the mark of a believer those who do not repent Paul says to the Ephesians they're fooling themselves verse 6 Let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things, those three things, sexual morality, impurity, covetousness, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. What would be these foolish empty words? Things like, God's not going to punish anybody. God only loves people. We're the only ones to punish. Or maybe, uh, look, God understands you can't obey. He knows you're not perfect. Anything to kind of bypass that this is wrong enough you have to repent it's your body it's your life hey you make the parameters god may have penciled in some lines but you determine where those really should be or some would say look the bible's not accurate whatever lines there are you can forget them don't be fooled by those empty words don't be fooled by those don't they'll be sucked into those empty arguments that in the end will be shown to not just be wrong, to be deadly. Verse 7 says, therefore do not become partakers with them. With who? The sons of disobedience, the ones who are walking in a way outside of God's parameters. Nope, don't become partakers with them. Does that mean I shouldn't know them or work with them or play with them? No, it means don't live like them means be in the world but not looking just like the world it means looking distinct verse 8 why for at one time you were in darkness but now you are light and in the Lord so walk as children of the light why don't become partakers because you've been changed that's not who you are anymore verse 9 Paul says for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Okay. Well, our culture would tell us again and again and again that what's good and right and true is pretty much whatever is good and right and true for you. And in fact, maybe the most good and most right and most true is that you would give everybody the freedom and the space to find out their own good and right and true. You'd be tolerant of them. What's well, not Paul's definition. His definition is that good and right and true is those things that mirror, reflect, point back to, image the character of God. But that's the boundaries for good, right, and true. And anything outside of that is an imposter, is a liar, is empty. Verse 10. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Why? Colossians 1 gives us some helpful instruction here. Colossians 1 verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. This is a thread throughout the New Testament that, that when God saves someone, that person's kind of the purpose of their life now alters to where instead of living to please themselves, they're living to please him. That they get some kind of satisfaction, some kind of enjoyment out of making God happy, out of pleasing Him. So understand what the Lord's will is, is that we're somehow, and part of where we're saved is to please Him. How? How do we please Him? We read, we hear what He has said, and we respond in obedience and in faith. Let's, I'll give you an example. Let's practice this from the next couple of verses here. So 11 to 14 It says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. What would this look like? A couple things. One, it would look like you become honest with your own sin. Become honest first with yourself. If there's sin you're not honest about, you're probably not repenting of it. If you're not repenting of it, you're probably not walking in faith. You're not walking in faith. Uh, You might be back to verse 5 and maybe you're in jeopardy or at least you're not flourishing as a believer. Be honest with your sin. Call it what it is. And, And maybe it's that some of you have never confessed your sin specifically to another believer. I don't mean come up here and for all to hear but I mean to another trusted brother or sister maybe you've never confessed your sin I need to say to you a human what I maybe I've been hiding from God there's something very powerful about exposing our sin personally and and precisely Uh, often when I'm meeting with students one of the questions I'll ask them is what are you repenting of And, and kind of we get around to okay here's where I've been sinning and, and, I, and I, don't, I don't need to know details. There's nothing in me that's like, oh, yes, give me the... I don't need to know that. That's not for me. I, I, there's no advantage to me. But what they need is freedom. And so if you've not ever repented, not that you need to forgive your brother or sister, but, but you heir to them. I need to tell you how I've been. I've been sinning and that I'm repenting of. There's something really powerful in that when we expose... Darkness. So first in ourselves, secondly in others. In others, call sin what it is. You don't have to be mean about this or hurtful. You can be loving. Adultery is a sin. Lying is a sin. Materialism is a sin. Neglecting the poor is a sin. When we let people live however they want to, especially in the church, we begin to not look very different from the world and we definitely are not following what Ephesians 5, what Paul's writing to them and now God's speaking to us where well, there to be a distinction. You don't have to be condemning. You don't have to be mean and hurtful. You have to be truthful. So shine light on sin where you are, at work, in school, the gym, the church, the shop, etc. Verse 15, he says, Be careful how you walk. So in this light shedding on darkness, be careful how you walk. Not as unwise, but wise. So if you're going to be one who, exposing sin in yourself and others, walk wisely. What does this mean? Essentially, whatever God's parameters spelled out for life are, stay within those boundaries. Don't flirt with the edges. Don't play outside of them. The world will call you hypocrite, and they'd be right. You, believer, will not be flourishing. verse 16 why why do we walk as wise not unwise 16 make the best use of your time because the days are evil this days are evil this is kind of a a old testament phrase inserted here it's it's kind of end of the world kind of cataclysmic apocalyptic type literature uh kind of signifying the end of an age what paul's saying is look life's not gonna go on forever Walk is wise because days are evil. The last days are upon us. Certainly we don't need any convincing that we'd live in difficult evil days. And not evil somewhere else where people just they don't know any better. Evil close. Not just one time one spot and pretty often. More than ever. We need to make the best use of our time. Does that mean being super productive? Work, 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 work. No, it just means take advantage of every opportunity in this fallen world to conduct yourself in a way that pleases God. Take every opportunity in this fallen world to conduct yourself in a way that pleases Him. So wherever you go, whoever you're with, every opportunity to to please God. And sometimes that might mean you sacrificially serve someone sometimes it mean, might mean you you expose darkness, so that means you might forgive, but live in a way that 's consistent with god 's boundaries for the believer verse seventeen he writes to them therefore don 't be foolish, understand what the lord 's will is okay don 't be foolish don 't return your kind of the senseless ways you used to live before you were a believer where Whatever God said, you didn't think it was significant, you didn't care, it wasn't important, it didn't affect you. Don't return to that. Don't return to you being your own boss. Live a life that's dependent upon Him. To live independent or self-reliant, this is foolish living. Okay, so understand what His will is. Um, He's revealed His will. We have to live out the implications of that. Philippians 2 is helpful here. Philippians 2, Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Well, Blake, that wasn't very helpful. It's consistent with the scripture. His will is not sometimes hyper-micro-focused. Okay? It's not just some kind of mental grasp, generally. Uh, It's to be lived out in practical decisions. It's not the will just for God's will, just for you and you alone. There's a a will that includes all of us. It mainly is that he's forming people into the image of Christ. This is his will for you. This series is not something clever that Curtis cooked up. This is the message of the scriptures that you have become who he has saved you and is remaking you to be. And that is to image more and more accurately Jesus Implications. So here's, here's some ways we can kind of kind of veer off the path and and maybe look for God's will where he, where it's not. Let me say it that way. So, for example, uh, one might say, "So let's say it's a uh, early stages of family time. A new baby. Uh, well, should we bottle feed or should we breastfeed? Which is God's will? Well, God's will is you feed your baby. That's His will." The rest might be turned on your context. Well let's get a little older. How about a public school or Christian school or homeschool? Uh, again, God's will, He's been pretty clear about it, is you teach your children. What about um, should I try join the Christian sports league or non Christian sports league? Well, God's will is that you would live worthy when you're participating in sports. And your context, your situation might determine which league you join. sometimes we we kind of try and narrow down to give me an answer, give me an answer, give me an answer. The answer is, listen, my answer is a little higher than that. My answer isn't always just so super specific. Sometimes we get trapped in, well, he's not telling me an answer. He's not giving me anything because I'm looking where it's not. His will for you in all areas of life is to make you image Jesus. So all the things you are currently, are you, are you a child in a family? Are you a sibling? Are you a parent? Are you a spouse? Are you an employer? Are you an employee? Are you a citizen? Are, are you a homeowner? Are you a renter? All the other ways. You, are you a patron? Are, are you affect the world. All the areas he wants you to live worthy in all those contexts. Live within his boundaries. This is his overarching will that you would image Jesus in all of those. Verse 18. The Paul continues. It looks like this. that so you don't get drunk with wine. That's debauchery, but are filled with the Spirit. So what's in view here is, is not really one drink. What's in view here is drunkenness, and drunkenness in their day, drunkenness in our day, where someone, um, what our culture calls, it, becomes under the influence, and that's actually a pretty accurate description because the Greek here we could translate this not just filled, or we could translate it controlled. In, in Luke's gospel, when he says "filled by the Spirit," filled by the Spirit, what he means is they're controlled by the Spirit. So, for the believer, what's to mark them is that the overriding influence in their life is the Holy Spirit. The overriding, what is this person under? What is driving them? How? What's the lens through which they're seeing life? What's um, manifesting and, and, and controlling their emotions? The spirit is to mark the believer. That's what they're supposed to be distinct and different from the world. Speak the verse nineteen, uh, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. Does this mean let's think about Paul's context. So, New Testament is forming. Um, you know, there's no like praise and worship music, so. And, Guitar hasn't been invented. Well, what could it be? Old Testament song. That's what it is. The Psalms. Does Paul just have in mind here we're just kind of quoting Psalms to one another? Um, At the very least, it means this. Remember, it's written to a church context. There's a corporate singing, a corporate kind of verbal, vocal, mutual encouraging one another that happens when people have this kind of singing instruction. And so some of the songs we just sang, some of them should have, many of them, reminded you of truths you have heard before, known before. And some of them should have been helpful, be still my soul. Okay, I, I didn't say that to myself at all this week. I didn't say one time for myself, be still my soul, the Lord's on your side. It was helpful for me to be reminded of that, mutually encouraged in that. So at the very least, what this means is it's hard to obey this verse if you're not in a a local church context. It's hard. Of all the many, many reasons why God has designed and made the local church, this is just one of the long list. Verse 20. He says, "...giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus." So now here's not a don't do this. Here's a this is what should mark the believer. How they should be distinct. They should give thanks. How often? What's the frequency? Always. This should be the kind of characterization. If Christians get made fun of, they should get made fun of for this. That they're thankful people. Constantly thankful people. If that doesn't characterize us, is that something you could, you know, point and go, Oh man enough of the thanks already, maybe we're not quite in step with the instruction in Ephesians. Thankful always. For what? For everything. No limits in that. Why? For the glory of the Father. Everything there is for you to be grateful for, He's the ultimate source of. Everything that, if we were to pause and just kind of walk through and, and express gratitude for things we don't deserve. And there's quite a few. He's the ultimate source for that. Move on one little phrase. In the name of the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the one who mediates it. It's his blood. Everything you have, everything you enjoy is a blood-bought gift by Jesus from the Father through the Spirit. So we're to live under the control of the Spirit because of the blood of Christ to the glory of the Father. Verse 21. This kind of sums up what he's talking about here. He says, oh yeah, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We back up to verse 1. supposed to be this mutual forgiving down to verse 21 for submitting. If the original language, we could translate this um, arranging under. Some of you have had to make some... um, presentations like on keynote or PowerPoint and, and you can put some images on there and if you can overlap a little bit you can say all right which one gets to get to move to the front? Which one gets arrangement priority? This uh, submitting to one another is arranging under each other. So if I'm gonna mutually submit that means I need to arrange myself under God's ordained structure of the body at the base that means I need to pursue what, I, what some might call being inconvenienced for each other's good it means whatever gifts I've been giving they, they aren't meant for me to to hoard and use for myself although they're, they're meant to be sacrificially poured out for the body and so, whatever gifts I've been given, if there's opportunity, hey, would you like to? Oh, is that Megaria gifting? Yeah, I really can't say no to that. Humility is how this happens. This image, this is a statue of Jesus washing the feet of a disciple. So, here we have the Creator washing the feet of his creature, the King serving what should be his servant. Okay? Here we have uh, the ruler submitting himself to one of his subjects. Here we have the sin offering. Washing the feet of one of those who's the reason he has to be slain. So this is a great example, right, for us. It's what submitting to one another is. Where I don't consider myself Superior or better to you. In fact, if I humble myself, then it becomes easier for me to serve you. It becomes easier I and mean, makes it appropriate for, for me to lovingly submit to my shepherds, who, who, who have to watch out and care for my soul in this body. When I serve you, I consider you worthy of my time, worthy of my energy. Worthy of resources. I I don't insist that you wait upon me. I I pursue waiting upon you. This happens in many ways that we take for granted. Every chair you're sitting on was put there by someone not that many hours ago. In fact, most of them in this section were put there by a teenager. Someone came and Almost anyone knowing serve. So you, you, in this whole time you've been the beneficiary of that service. So many people came and put this whole platform together, and you can Some of you can't see it on the bottom. There's these little like feet. You spin and slide out just so it perfectly sits still, so no one falls over. Faithful, sacrificial, love. Not you know me. Here's you. No, I'm, I'm going to serve them. I'm, I'm going to lovingly submit to them. Let me kind of sum this chapter 5 up. If we're going to imitate God, what Paul says here, if we're going to become who we're to be, it means we're becoming forgiving. This should more and more mark us. we're become forgiving, this means we're walking in the light. We're going to be becoming thankful. Not crude. Not filth. No, thankfulness should more and more and more mark us. It means we are becoming comfortable with God's boundaries. We're not begrudging them, not trying to change them. We're kind of accepting and seeing them as really love towards us. It means we're we're becoming quick to repent of our sin, not pretending we don't do wrong, quick to accept responsibility. It means we're, we're imitating God, we're becoming controlled by the Spirit. Not under the influence of anything or anyone else, but more and more and more under his influence. It means becoming a servant of your local church and not persisting as a casual observer, a, a casual partaker. No, no a, a regular contributor, server. These are the things that mark someone who's, Paul's saying, imitates God. Let's pray together. Father, we're about to sing a song and and respond to your truth. And and I I feel what every pastor always feels when they preach. It is, I'm inadequate to, to do what I just preached. We all are apart from you. So we we depend so desperately upon you to change us, for us to becoming what we're we're saved to be, you need to do this, Lord. And yet it seems in the word, this is what your desire is, this is what you're planning. We're not left to on our own, we're not left to chance. Would you let us see in some small and maybe even some big ways evidence of work of the Spirit in these areas in our lives? Father, the world more than ever needs a true faithful witness of you, your power, your compassion. This happens As we image you more and more. So we submit ourselves and respond to you as we sing. Amen.